Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening whenever you're listening, and welcome to Tri-State at the Plate. I'm your host, Andy Burdick, and I am pleased to bring you a special edition of our podcast. Today we're interviewing author Brad Belukjan, who ascribed the LA Times best-selling book, The Wax Pack, on the open road in search of baseball's afterlife. The Wax Pack chronicles Brad's journey to attempt to track down each player that he pulled from a pack of 1986 Topps baseball cards and his experiences on an 11,000-mile cross-country journey. When he's not writing best-selling books, Brad also teaches biology at Merritt College in the Bay Area. He has a bachelor's degree in island biogeography from Duke University and a PhD in entomology from UC Berkeley. While this probably means that he's smarter than you, he's also penned one of the most relatable baseball narratives that I've read in the last few years. As the father of a toddler, I don't get a lot of free time to read leisurely. As a person who grew up collecting baseball cards, though, I couldn't put this book down and I finished it in three days. Every time I check this book out on Amazon, it's a number one bestseller in a different category. Today it was Cleveland, Ohio Travel Books. If you don't already have a copy, you can go to the website for the book, www.waxpackbook.com, and purchase a copy there. You can find his book at bookshop.org, Amazon, your local bookstore, or anywhere else that can manage to keep it on the shelf. It took me a few days to find a copy to get myself because it was sold out everywhere I was looking. This discussion is going to have some questions related specifically to the content of the book, so if you haven't read the book, I'd encourage you to listen to the point in the episode when I warn you of spoilers, or you could just buy yourself a copy, read the book, and listen spoiler-free. I think if you enjoy collecting cards, enjoy baseball, or generally are just curious about what can motivate a person to undertake an 11,000-mile road trip to meet his heroes that were forever immortalized on cardboard, you'll enjoy this week's episode. So without further delay, here's my discussion with Brad Belukjan, author of The Wax Pack. So before you were a best-selling author of a book about mostly obscure 80s baseball players, you were... <laughs> You're a scientist, you're a doctor of philosophy, you're a college professor. You've had articles that are published in Rolling Stone, National Geographic, Smithsonian. So I guess what I was curious about first is, how did those latter descriptors lead you to the former descriptor? Yeah, well, and, and as a descriptor, best-selling author of obscure 80s players is quite the paradox, right? <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, most of the the 38 uh, editors that rejected me would probably be surprised to know that that's a, a real thing now. But yeah, so I, um, I would say that my, my interest in, in so I have kind of two careers. I, I am, am a freelance writer and a scientist and professor, and I've always in my, in my writing career, which is focused more on, on science and, and uh, biology and what I write about, I've always wanted to have the chance to write something longer, something like book length. I was trained, my first job out of college was as a fact checker, which I'm very grateful to have had that training now at a magazine that no longer exists called Islands Magazine. And I've always written uh, really short stuff, but I always, I was trained in that long form style, you know, kind of the, the people that I read when I was first taking classes were uh, Tom Wolfe and Susan Orlean and Hunter S. Thompson and all that new journalism kind of stuff from The New Yorker and Esquire in the 70s. Um, and that was the kind of writing I always wanted to do. 
but it's you know it's harder and harder to get that stuff published <clears throat> and so when i was thinking about trying to do something in that genre i thought well you know nowadays you, you kind of have to write a book because there's just so few magazine outlets that do that anymore and i was as i was thinking about book ideas um i always had this fascination with those obscure players from my childhood and the underdogs and i thought <clears throat> if i could find a way to to write about those guys and kind of what happened to them i thought it would be a really um it would be an opportunity to get to to write in that in that creative nonfiction style <clears throat> excuse me so i had the idea of i mean really it was the inspiration of a of a single pack providing the device to get a random sample of players from that era and knowing that in any given pack most of the guys are going to be those bench warmer underdog types and i loved the sort of the the quirkiness and the you know the um kind of whimsy of being constrained by whoever happens to be in one pack of cards and then <clears throat> turning it into this road trip adventure was an opportunity to again finally get to write in that in that first person narrative style and to try to flex those creative nonfiction muscles um and i think that to your question about how does sort of one part of my life inform the other the common through line between my writing and my science is just a, a is a fascination with um, sort of answering some overarching question and and I guess the spirit of discovery. So I would have never predicted that doing a Ph.D. on Tahitian insects would have prepared me well to write a book about 1980s bench warmer players. But it's true that when you are trained in, in science, the scientific method is very similar to what you do when you write a book like this. You know, you have some big question. In this case, it was, you know, what happens to baseball players when they're done playing? Uh, you have some hypothesis going in. You have some me method of data collection, which when it comes to entomology is going out and collecting insect specimens. When it comes to this book, it's <clears throat> going on the road and finding and interviewing these players. Um, and then you have all this 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 data, you know, and then you have to find a way now to distill all of those data into something that is succinct and that allows you to draw conclusions based on the weight of the evidence. And so that whole process, you know, it's, it's really amazing to me how how similar journalism and and science are. So, for people that might not know or, or haven't heard or read anything about you prior to this, what's a, a little bit of, of your backstory? So where did you grow up? What's your kind of connection to baseball? What are the things in your own personal life that, that kind of led you to where you're at now? I grew up in Rhode Island uh, in a small town in a small state um, where, I, as I say, everything is a suburb of Providence. <laughs> and uh, I, all, I guess my, my passion in, in life has always been um, islands. So my major in college was island biogeography. I worked at Islands Magazine. My PhD was about insects that live on islands, and that's sort of been my my over overarching theme. But I also have I, I found a knack when I was in high school for for writing and writing nonfiction. I, I I've never wanted to write fiction. I still to this day have no desire to write a novel. It terrifies me to be that unconstrained by the truth. So when I 
was in in college, I went to Duke and I majored in island biogeography. But I also took my first magazine journalism classes. And I remember, you know, taking that first class and reading Tom Wolfe's essay about the new journalism. And it just everything just clicked this this. You know, I remember I I guess my my guiding principles in the wax pack and anything that I write long form is using those four techniques of using um, dialogue and scene setting details and playing with the author's point of view and using a scene by scene construction format, those techniques that are what really make fiction so compelling. But when you apply them to nonfiction, that's the kind of writing that I love to do. And so that was when I first took that class, like it's something, again, something just clicked They're like, wow, this is, this is fun. It's, you know, this kind of writing is, is entertaining and compelling, but it's also true. And so I, I kind of fell in love with storytelling in that, in that genre. And from there always have carved out a career where I wanted to be able to prioritize my, my passion and my curiosity over, over money. So, you know, with that comes certain trade-offs. Like I've, I still, I'm 39. I still rent a room in a house in Oakland. Uh, I don't make very much money, but I'm able to, you know, creatively kind of and professionally do what I really love doing. And I'm also able to do that because I you know I don't, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have to support a family. So, you know, all these things are, are decisions and trade-offs that we make. And for me, it's been really rewarding to always be able to, to do exactly what I, what I love doing in my career. So I've been kind of curious, after I graduated from college, I took my first public teaching job in Durham Public Schools. So I lived at the other end of 15501 uh, in Chapel Hill. Oh. And I'm kind of curious, did you uh, did you enjoy your time socially when you were uh, attending Duke? I did. I mean, I love Duke. Um, I think you'll find very few people that, very few alumni that, that don't have a, a good feeling about it. It was... Uh, yeah, it was just a, I mean, I think it was a very kind of classic college experience. The way, I mean, this is back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and Duke may have changed somewhat since then. But back then, everything was pretty, you know, pretty contained on campus. You had this strong school spirit with basketball, and um, it's a beautiful location. So I, I always had nothing but fond memories of, of that time. It's a, it's a fantastic area, especially if you like, if you like sports. There's something incredibly intense and unique about ACC athletics where, so growing up in, in Western Pennsylvania where we live, it's a big Pittsburgh Steelers kind of culture, like Steelers dominate a lot of the, the headlines in the fall. And so when you go to a, a Steelers game, you get that kind of like reverberating echo from the number of fans cheering and everybody's waving terrible towels. And I never thought in my life that I would find a an athletic competition that would rival experiencing that. And the first time that I went to a to an ACC basketball game, I was like, oh, no, there are definitely many other places where apparently people are very passionate about sports like that. It was uh, it was something to witness. Did you go to any big ticket sporting events while you were there? I, I, I like camped out in Krzyzewskiville for Duke. And, <laughs> yeah, OK. But I wasn't a fanatic. Um, but I and it's funny. I never really liked basketball that much until I went there. And you just you can't help but, but enjoy it. But it's funny you say the thing about sports because I grew up in New England, which is a huge sports stronghold of professional sports, you know, Patriots and Red Sox and Yankees and New York and all that. 
And then, as you said, in, in the Triangle in North Carolina, there's a lot of this, the college sports. When I moved to California right after college, I was in Santa Barbara and then L.A. and now the Bay Area. And it was so weird to me to like Californians perception of sports is so radically different. Like I remember the first people I met and I was like, are you a sports fan? They were like, yeah, I love to surf. I love to cycle. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> no. Like there, you know, the the initial association with sports were these individual outdoor sports, not the the NFL or the MLB. What totally different culture. That's so funny. So the the whole premise of your book, as you've stated, is is kind of tracking down these former professional athletes from this this pack of '86 tops. And so the the first thing that I thought of, I'm actually sitting here at my my desk recording, and I'm looking at a, a stack of cards. I'm going through and cataloging all my cards from when I was a kid. And I'm looking at wow. uh, an what made you want to do that? Just out of curiosity. So the, like uh, one part of the thing I enjoyed about collecting cards when I was a kid was just the compulsiveness you could have satisfied <laughs> yeah. by, you know, like whether it's sorting them in stacks when you're opening them or whether it's organizing them in the sleeves, you know, and completing a, a whole set. So I've, I've always kind of had that compulsive tendency. And so now that I have a son, I kind of want this stuff to be organized and and i'd like for him to be able to kind of pick through it and see because for me cards were a way to kind of like with you cards were a way for me to connect with the players connect with the stats and so i I wanted to have it just orderly for him yeah Um, and there's something like i do wonder about well i mean how old is your how old is your son he's four now so he's still too young to i'll be curious when as your son grows up to know if kids now see any difference between um, like the, the the tangible item of the uh, you know the 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 um uh what's the word uh, analog you know baseball card the physical item versus a digital thing because to to your point to me there was something about having the cards baseball cards that them being these physical objects somehow made them like sink in more to me you know like it, you know there was something about about that, that, uh, the, the tangibility of the object that I think a, like a digital baseball card would not capture. Yeah. I feel like, so, you know, like tops has a, a tops bunt app where you can go collect digital cards. And I feel like had I had that when I was a kid, I would have just, you know, opened it up a couple times, swiped through whatever was on the screen and discarded it kind of like you do everything that's digital. Um, right. And, you know, I have, to your point, I'm staring at like a Greg Maddox 1987 Donruss rated rookie that's you know in a in a penny sleeve yeah. and a top loader that's still in Which like is funny. I can, I can, he has like he's like in mid windup. Right? Yeah, oh yeah, right. And that's the other cool thing about it too is because I can I can tell you that card and right away you're like oh yeah no that's that card with him on the front doing this and yeah that's the cool thing about having that stuff generation to generation and it was so and one of the questions i wanted to ask you too was just kind of how deep into card collecting you got when you were a child so do you have like boxes right boxes of them did you put them in sleeves how how far into that hobby did you get so i um definitely you know got tons of packs in the late 80s um and i still have thousands of cards in storage I stopped collecting probably in the mid, early to mid nineties. Um, and you know, but my, my favorite item from that era was I, I took uh, just a three ring binder that I got at like CVS and, 
and I made my own album of all the underdog players that I liked. And I had like I said, I don't know. I, it's so weird. I had like 30 to 50 players that for some reason or another, I just liked these guys. And the only thing they had in common was they were they were not stars. <laughs> Uh, sometimes it was like, you know, I had my favorite letter, which was F. So like, I liked guys like Tony Fossis and Felix Fermin and, you know, um, all, you know, Kevin Flora for their F names. But then other guys, I have no idea why I liked like Bob Zupsik and I like Dennis Lamp and, you know, it's inexplicable, but, um, something about, and then I would, I would go and try to collect those, their cards. And I remember I would go to baseball card shops and i would have a list of cards and they'd be like oh you're trying to complete a set and i was like no <laughs> i just really want bob zupsick and marty barrett's cards <laughs> and they're like okay you're strange <laughs> yeah, they're probably just ready to give them to you for free for those guys yeah oh that's funny so i'm kind of curious because i have a, a few friends that that were also like around our age that that collected cards as well and for all of us, it seemed that card collecting satisfied a, a kind of, like I said, compulsiveness where it was like we enjoyed the organization. We enjoyed the, you know, the, the sorting of the cards, that process. So obviously you're a college professor, you're a PhD. You, you probably have some of those compulsive tendencies I'm describing where you like sorting and you like organizing. But did baseball cards and baseball in general, did it kind of satisfy like a, a compulsive oh, yeah. uh, well, tendency for you? I mean, in the book, I talk fairly extensively about having OCD and, um, you know, how my experience with OCD relates to my, you know, the, the book and what I'm doing in the book. So for sure that there's a no doubt there's a obsessive compulsive component to the card collecting. And, you know, I remember when I was going into therapy for OCD and describing my personality and my different quirks. And the therapist said, look, you know, it's only a disorder if it's disruptive in your life, right? If it, if it brings you joy, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> um, so there are aspects of being a bit OCD that are, that, that are not nothing to be worried about. It's just when it, when the compulsions and obsessions start to, you know, Im negatively impact your daily life. That's when it's a problem. Was it kind of was it kind of liberating for you to talk to someone who told you like it's okay to have these kinds of feelings you're having as long as it's not interrupting your life? Well, no, I mean no in the sense that like I it was interrupted. I mean I had I had true OC. I mean I was when I was seeing that therapist, it was badly disrupting my life. Not not my baseball card collection, but other aspects of my right. OCD. Um, so it, it gave me relief when I finally understood why I had all these weird sort of inexplicable, irrational fears and compulsive behaviors. It, it made sense just to put a label on it. Right. And to know that, OK, this is just this is a manifestation of anxiety. This is one of what are many flavors of anxiety disorders. And I think when you deal with an anxiety disorder, half the battle is understanding what it is sort of physiologically how it works and as a scientist you know once i had read about how okay well this particular chemical in, in my brain is not is not at the same level as someone who doesn't have ocd then it makes sense and then you realize okay well you know then it goes from understanding and awareness to what are you going to do about it and and understanding what you can control and what you can't control and the parts you can control ultimately will, um, you know, will make all the difference. 
And so I want to I want to get to this a little bit later on because I think a lot of this ties back to your your Don Carmen chapter. But did any of this book help you process parts of your own life? Was it like was it instructive or informative for you to go through this process personally? Yeah, I think it was. It wasn't like this sort of complete awakening epiphany, but it more reinforced or helped kind of validate some of the things that I had been discovering on my own in my in my journey with OCD in my life. I felt like I had I felt a lot in common with the players as they were willing to be open and vulnerable with me and share some of their things like, I, you know, there was just a lot that I related to. And so. It kind of felt like this this affirmation or this kinship with these guys, which was extra special because these were guys that I was, you know, literally collecting their baseball cards as a kid. And so it was even more neat to to make these connections with guys that I had once, you know, idolized. And another another really cool thing that you usually don't get to find out because not often do you get access to uh, an author of a, a book like this, but each reader is going to kind of be able to take away their own lesson at the end of your journey. When you get to the end of this experience as a narrator, your experience as someone who went through this is going to be completely different from the reader's experience who's, who's taking it in. What did you learn from the process of writing this book that would be different from what someone's going to learn from reading this book? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, there's this great quote from uh, this writer, William Langevisa, that said, writing is a private conversation between the writer and each individual reader. And as a writer in, in writing it, I remember thinking it, it, the more you can frame it as that, as a one-on-one -on -one conversation versus thinking about writing something for thousands of people, it, 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 I think it allows you to be a little more intimate in your in your writing and to your point it's i know sort of what my intention is in my writing but i don't know w what the reader is going to experience i mean I, I i know i want to have an emotional connection because that emotional connection is what keeps the reader engaged and moving forward but you know i've seen just from reading feedback and talking to people and getting reviews that uh, although the response has been very positive, there have been a variety of reactions from readers and things that some people like and things don't. Some people don't like, um, and it's really interesting to see that. And you know, as a you know, writers tend to be, it's you're you're very sensitive. You know, I mean, writing, especially this kind of writing, is so intensely personal that if someone, if a complete stranger says like, "Oh, you're a jerk" or "Your your writing sucks," which which they do, you know. I mean, every writer deals with that. It's it's really you know your react your it's really hurtful. You feel very wounded. You want you feel defensive. You want to fight back. But then I was talking to this guy um, Brad King, who does a podcast, and I was talking a little bit about this, and he's like, you know, he's kind of on the other. He was like, you know what, like, and he's he's uh, uh, written a lot, and he's a veteran. He's like, I don't care what people think. He's like, I could care less what their opinion is because, and he, he made a really interesting point, which was that their opinion is informed by their own experience and their own life. It, nothing, it has nothing to do with him, right? It's, it's really about what they're bringing to the book and every reader brings something to the book. It's like, just like when I, 
when I teach, I don't, I don't like this idea that I'm this sage on the stage and I have a bunch of empty vessels that I'm there to fill up with knowledge and that they're all kind of starting in the same place because every one of my students is different and is coming. They are bringing something into the classroom already. They're not starting from scratch. They're not a tabula rasa. And so it's my job as a teacher to understand as best I can in a short amount of time what they're bringing in and how their response to what I'm teaching interacts with what they're bringing into the, the classroom. And it's similar with a book. Um, and when you look at it that way, I think you, you take it less personally because you realize that in this one-on-one -on -one relationship that you, every writer has with the reader, the writer's bringing in certain baggage, but so is the reader. That's really interesting. And that was one of the things I was, I was hoping to get to, which, which uh, you already touched on is the, the criticism that you receive for putting yourself out there. And I do think that there's, there's something to be said where when you're in a profession like education, you're, you're standing in front of people day after day, you're, you're performing, you're used to getting that kind of immediate feedback from students. And I'm, I'm not sure probably at the, the college level, but I can tell you at the middle school level, kids are pretty, kids are pretty like straightforward and you're going to get pretty immediate feedback when things are going well and when things aren't going well. And right. the first, the first couple of times you get that criticism, you're, you're you're right you're really defensive about it and then after you know you you do it for a few years you realize like oh well some of these criticisms are legitimate some of it is just you know some of it you you can't take personally because it it's coming from a place that maybe has nothing to actually do with you and and so i, I think that's a really interesting perspective for you to have where you you kind of learned as you went along like oh yeah you can't take all those barbs maybe necessarily as personally as you did at the beginning well and this guy this guy Brad King also said um not only is he does it not bother him but he's as a as a writer interested in in wanting to know what it is that informed that person's negative criticism so if i guess if they were in in his you know face to face and they were critical he would say well, tell him, you know, he'd want to know, well, what is it about your experience that led you to that conclusion? Which I think is, I mean, that's the ultimate sign of, of a writer is, is that some, you know, that you, you look at it, you're just, you're always trying to dig deeper to what's at the, at the, at the foundation of whatever you're writing about. Before we get into, and I do have a couple like specific questions about the book, because there were a lot of great parts in this, in this narrative that I was just fascinated with, but I do want to know what's the experience of releasing a book during a pandemic like for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, definitely tedious and Groundhog Day, like it is for all of us in terms of you know there's no escape. Um, your your desk is your office is is your life. Um, but and certainly like I had a 35 stop cross country book tour plan that's out the window. But there have been a lot of um, really nice things that have come out of it, like the pandemic baseball book club, where several writers with baseball books that were affected by the pandemic, we all kind of came together uh, to form this club, this platform where we promote each other's books. And we've turned it into a podcast and a newsletter and interview series. And, and I've made new friends that I've, it's interesting, I haven't even met most of them in person, but I feel like I know them really well just from the experience. So now I want to talk a little bit about the book itself. So I just want everyone to be aware, if you have not read The Wax Pack yet, that there will probably be some mild spoilers ahead. But the, the basic premise of the book is that you opened a pack of, of 86 tops, and, and your goal was to to get a chance to, to interact with all of the players from, from the pack and kind of record your experience. So 
when you when you first opened up this pack and you're rolling through and and you're seeing you know like a, a basic pack of cards is going to have you know a, a bunch of role players and then one or two stars right so mm-hmm. as you're rolling through these players and you're you're thinking about like having to track track people down like this do you get a little nervous about what happens if you pull like a Cal Ripken Jr. or a George Brett out of your pack and how that's going to unfold? Well, I did, right? I mean, I pulled a Carlton Fisk and a Dwight Gooden. Yeah. <laughs> and I was immediately like, oh, yeah, this is not, this is going to be tough. So it's funny because it's the inverse reaction of most people when they're kids and you get those, the best cards, you're excited. I was sort of the, the least <laughs> excited by those cards. How big of a MacGuffin was? Carlton Fisk for you from a writing perspective did you do you kind of use him as like a literary element to keep people interested was that like a a strategic choice for you as far as like where he was placed in the the hierarchy of chapters in the book well the book is really it really is chronological it just turned out that that the way I mean I, I got lucky basically that the the sort of emotional ebb and flow of the book follows a nice kind of a three act you know, story and that early on it's, I do really well. And in the middle, I have these troubles with Fisk and Coleman and Gooden, and then it ends strong. Um, but yeah, I, when I, when Fisk rejected me early on, I, I knew that I wanted to have fun with that and make that sort of MacGuffin thing. And it's interesting. It's been one of the, you know, things I've gotten the most criticism on is some people that are, that just think I'm such a jerk for doing what I did. And, you know, <laughs> saying how, you know, how dare you infringe on, you know, his privacy and, you know, all this and that. It's been it's been interesting to watch that reaction and watch my reaction to that reaction, try to sort through it, you know, think through it. And it, it brings up a really interesting question, which I think is how much of a responsibility do athletes have to their fans? You know, and, and it's a I don't know that there's one right answer to that, but there's there's good arguments on on both sides. So did you find, was there a correlation? I mean, obviously, I guess you could use Fisk as the the perfect example, but did you find overall, was there a correlation between the player's level of success and their openness to experiencing this process with you? So I'm thinking of kind of like Rance Rance Mullenix, who was like, you know, a 280 career hitter, like a good good baseball player. You know, when you compare him to, to somebody else who maybe didn't have like career stats that were as impressive, were they, were players, yeah, levels of success correlated yeah, to how open they were it, it was a yeah very much so um that the guys that were the biggest stars were the most difficult to to work or to get to talk to <clears throat> i mean some guys that were pretty big stars like rick Sutcliffe and gary templeton were great so it was not like you know there's it's a it's a uh <clears throat> perfect correlation but um the top you know the dwight goodens and the carls and fisks yeah they were they were tough uh, and so there is definitely a, a relationship there. So we're a, a Western Pennsylvania-based podcast. So two of the players that, that stood out to me were players that were very familiar names to me growing up, which were Richie Hebner and, and Lee Mazzilli, um, mm-hmm. who are both Pittsburgh famous, albeit for some different reasons. But did either of them share any interesting perspectives about playing or living in Pittsburgh during their careers? Well, um, Mazzilli, I talked to, I didn't really put this in the book, but he talked talked to him about Pittsburgh for a little while, and he uh, he really was he he enjoyed Pittsburgh. He said he liked the fans, he liked playing there, 
but he said that he really felt kind of left out in the cold by Chuck Tanner. And he talked in, in detail about how, I don't know what year it was, maybe 83 when he is in Pittsburgh and he said he was doing well. And then he, Chuck Tanner benched him and brought in, I think, Marvell Wynn. And he just felt like Chuck Tanner never really thought very highly of him. And he didn't have a very good relationship with Chuck Tanner. And so he then he kind of just became this role player. And then, you know, he goes back to the Mets and he has a big thing in 86. So, you know, he didn't really uh, have the best experience there with the manager. Um, Hebner, you know, for all of his heroics in Pittsburgh, we didn't really spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, mostly because I just didn't have a lot of time with Hebner. Uh, and I was, again, if I had limited time, I was more interested in finding out what these guys did right when they stopped playing. So, yeah, I didn't get uh, into a lot of detail in, on Pittsburgh. So when I got your copy of the book and I, I opened it up, when I saw those two names in there, because I grew up in western Pennsylvania, they were the players that stood out to me. So mm -hmm. right away I went into reading your book with this kind of bias of like, oh, this is what's really going to to like, this is what I'm going to be the most interested in is seeing their sure. perspectives. But actually I found that there were a couple other chapters of the book and a couple other players that you talked to that, that really stood out to me as well. One of them that I thought was, was really interesting was when you were talking to Steve Yeager mm -hmm. and he had mentioned about his road to recovery from alcohol that mm -hmm. he said, once it's gone, it's gone. And for him, it was just almost like it was like a switch that he flipped. Mm. And right. I guess for me, my whole kind of life philosophy is everything in moderation. That's how, you know, I kind of enjoy a little bit of everything. But for him, it was kind of like he just couldn't do that. Do you relate to his mindset that he had about alcohol where it's once it's gone, it's gone? Um, well, and, and looking at that passage, it's also he was talking about his marriages, too. He was talking about sort of both his his divorces and his um, his drinking in terms of I mean, I, I don't I, I've never had a, an addiction where I could relate to sort of the idea of having to let it go completely versus moderation. But I, I view his his perspective on kind of once it's gone, it's gone, I think is is a way to sometimes there are there are certain things where you just have to let you have to just very forcefully kind of let go um you know when it came to his marriage uh, i don't you know i i didn't get the sense that he was because some people when they when they say it's gone they, they're sort of in denial and they're suppressing it which i don't think is healthy i didn't get the impression that he was suppressing anything i got the impression that he was the opposite, he was accepting that, you know, his marriage had failed or two of his marriages had failed and that he was not able to just or it wasn't good for him to be drinking at all. And that he did kind of flip a switch and to sort of accept that this was not going to be part of his life anymore. And that that acceptance is one of the things that I think a lot of these guys were are really good at, both when they were playing baseball and then after baseball and the, the ability to accept and move on is I think a huge part of the, the ability to, to sort of lead a content life. Yeah. It does seem like a very baseball kind of mindset 
or I guess maybe the kind of mindset that you need to have to be a high level athlete, which is basically yeah. like, I'm just going to put my mind to this and do it. And he just did it. Like, it's almost like that, that manifest destiny kind of like, yeah, I've always wanted to play in the world series. So now I'm just going to do it. It, right. it. it was really interesting to see that the other, so there was, there was another really interesting perspective, maybe on the whole other end of the spectrum compared to Steve Yeager. But when you were speaking to, um, Jaime Kokenauer, mm-hmm. he said that he had kind of like almost like a backup plan for being a professional athlete, which was he ended up, did he, did he get an accounting degree or did he, I, I can't remember the specifics of yeah, it, but he, he, he was he an his, accountant. He had his degree before he uh, stopped playing. He got his degree while he was in, in um, playing baseball. I mean, he had been done most of his college before he signed out and then he finished college while he was in the minor leagues. Did you find that perspective interesting it's all like i said almost on the other end of the spectrum from steve yeager which is he kind of hedged his bets with like being that professional athlete and had that that career ready to go in case i don't want to say in case baseball didn't work out but if baseball didn't work out he had something to fall back on right well kokenauer is the anomaly in the outlier in this in this book in this pack because he's the one guy that openly admits that he was not he didn't have the mental toolkit to i think be more successful in baseball you know he openly admitted that he didn't have he wasn't able to to flip that switch and let let it go if he got shut if he got shelled you know and he would he there's a quote in the book where he says something about like i i saw these my teammates on tv talking about how they yeah whatever i'll just you know go out forget about it and move on tomorrow and he's like he couldn't understand how they could do that and i think that that's a big reason of why he wasn't more successful playing baseball because he would, he, you know, he, he would, the, um, the setbacks and the failures would eat away, eat away at him. At the same time, he had maybe because he recognized that in himself, he did have, he was planning ahead with what came next in a way that none of the other guys did. And therefore like the, the moment he retired, he went right into a nice office job (laughs) And so, I mean, it's, I think it's an interesting question to ask all of us, like, would you rather be Jaime Kokenauer, who made the major leagues, didn't, wasn't very successful, and then has had this, like, really wonderful post-baseball life, or would you rather be Steve Yeager or, you know, even someone, let's take it to a further extreme, would you rather be Carlton Fisk, who was a Hall of Famer and a superstar, and yet you know, doesn't seem as happy or doesn't seem to have moved on uh, past that baseball identity. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question that we can all, we can all answer. I mean, I think I personally would rather be Jaime Kokenauer. Yeah, that, boy, when you put it in that context, when you compare the the two different career trajectories and then where they're currently at now, that that is a really interesting comparison between those two. Now, here's... Here's the chapter that stood out to me the most, and I was the most blown away by this because I don't, I mean, I think I might remember Don Carmen just as, as being a baseball player, like seeing his cards. I, I have no recollection of him playing. Um, I don't have any, you know, baseball memories of him, but Don Carmen to me was the chapter where I was the most just engaged, engrossed, because he seemed like he had out of everybody that you spoke to the the most depth he had he seemed to have like the most 
interesting perspective on just what a career as a professional athlete meant and and how you how you almost have to live your life in in a certain way as an athlete and then be able to be reflective on it but he to me he seemed like the most complex person throughout your journey and you had two chapters dedicated to him one was about his his hometown and and his life growing up and then you know the other was like your your discussion with him did you present him this way as a complex character intentionally as like a literary element or is this just kind of my interpretation of Don Carmen? No, I think you, you, you got it spot on. I mean, I was certainly biased in the sense that I was, he was my favorite player. So I was really hoping he would be <laughs> a great person to write about, but I, you know, there's a double edged sword. Cause what if I, you know, he's my favorite player and then he's kind of a dud, you know, then it's sort of, you get this disappointment. Right. And so I didn't know, what he was going to be like. But when I found out, I mean, I knew, I knew that I wanted to at least go give him that little extra special treatment by going and finding his hometown because he was my favorite player, but also because his, his origin story, I think had more, more potential than most because of just the unusual circumstances in which he grew up But this town of like 200 people in Western Oklahoma. I mean, such a rural outpost that, you know, if you wrote about Gary Templeton growing up in Santa Ana, California, it'd be like, okay, Santa Ana is like Southern California, mid-sized city. I don't, it, it, it's big. It wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to capture that the same way you could capture Camargo, Oklahoma in one chapter. So I saw the, the you know, there were multiple reasons why I did those two chapters on Carmen. Um, and then I just got lucky. I mean, I got lucky that Carmen was such an amazing, thoughtful, introspective guy. And I think I got lucky in where I mean, I, I think that chapter is the, the strongest chapter in the book. And I think he's if there is one main character among the wax packers, it's him. And I think that, I, again, it's it sort of worked out nicely to me that it's he's right in the middle of the book. I mean, he's you know, he's sort of literally the the heart of the book, but also figuratively the heart of the book. And had you prior to prior to your your research with with this baseball like this i guess had you ever heard of harvey dorfman yeah yeah i knew of him as being like the you know the mental side of baseball guy and you know that he'd written those books yeah and because to me and i i think again it's just kind of like this this odd hurricane of just circumstance of everything coming together but when i was younger i had friends that that played baseball on a, a pretty high level and you know when i was going through some typical like early 20s struggles of my own my one friend had suggested hey read this book it has a lot to do with baseball but it also has a lot to do with just how to kind of live life day to day and mm -hmm. when I read that book it was such a transformative book for me where it it was really like the first time that I understood why athletes spoke the way they did and why that makes sense to kind of frame things in that way and so for me personally that chapter in your book just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks where you know, you can kind of see like this next generation of, of athletes is going to have that that ability to kind of equip themselves to go through life. And it works for athletes, but it also works for regular people. And, and so to me, again, that's why that that chapter really stood out the most to me. It was I just thought it was some very powerful writing. I really connected with it. And I, I'm kind of glad to hear that you thought of that chapter as the heart of your book, too, because it, it kind of clicked with me as well. Right. And, and I, I mean, one of the points of the book is that you were just talking about working for athletes, working for regular people. I think one of the 
main points of the book is that athletes are regular people that, uh, you know, other than their their exceptional ability to, to play this sport, for the most part, I mean, they're, you know, they're more similar to us than we realize. Yeah, I think, yeah, just the nature of their job is the only thing that makes them any different from yeah anybody else. So having gone through this experience, how do you feel about meeting your heroes now? And I'm doing that in, in air quotes for you, but I think that's probably how most people would, would phrase that. Yeah, I... Um... You mean like how would I feel moving like moving forward and meeting other people that were my heroes? No, I guess I guess when I think of this book, I think of it as fulfilling a, a childhood dream, right? Like if you if you would have said to your ten year old self, Hey, when you open this pack of cards, kid, someday you're gonna get to meet all these baseball players and you actually like live that. So how how do you feel now at the conclusion of it about having gone through that and meeting those players? I mean, a beautiful journey, a uh, lucky um, that I, you know, that I was able to to make it happen and execute it. Um, I feel a certain closeness and kinship with the guys that I met and an appreciation for them because of who they are as people, not not the baseball part. Um, And I think, you know, this may sound weird, but I feel uh, very close to them without needing to, um, you know, talk to them all the time or have an ongoing communication. Um, it's weird. It's like, I I look at that as a, as a healthy, um, closeness with people, but, but not attaching to it. And I, you know, there's a, in the, in the book, I go and I meet up with my ex-girlfriend who I haven't seen in nine years. And I, I describe that as something like, that moment, even though we only spent an hour or two together, we, you know, there was that we, we will always have this special bond and connection and, and relationship, even if I don't see her again for years, or even if we don't talk about all of, you know, what, what we had in the past. And I think like, I think the biggest mistake we have as people is when we, when we try to like attach to, to, relationships too much or we try to like you know it's like people have have said well are you do you want to you know continue talking to these wax packers and continue you know doing things with them and it's like i'm grateful for what they gave me but i don't feel like i need to um continue being in touch with them all the time it's like we you know i i accept that we that we had this you know, this wonderful collaboration. And then again, it's about, to me, about kind of letting that go. You know, that seems healthier. So that's kind of interesting that you brought up the the point about meeting with, with your ex-girlfriend, because one of the things that I found interesting about this book was you go into this book with the whole mentality of it's about meeting the wax packers. And, and that's the whole, that's the, the crux of the book is, is that journey. But there were also some, some pretty heavy parts about your personal life that you included. Did your perspective on this project change as your writing progressed through this story? Did it kind of start out for you as just a, a story that you were writing all about wax packers, and then you found some of these personal um, anecdotes or stories fit well in there? Or did you always kind of have this this vision for the story from the start? For the most part, I had the vision of, of wanting to include parts of my personal life because I thought that would make it a better book. I thought that that with this kind of book, which really is a narrative uh, that's meant to be read from 
straight through from beginning to end. You know, it's not a reference book. It's not a, I mean, the, the book to me would would work if there had to be some kind of bridge between the players. Otherwise, it just sort of would be a bunch of individual stories put together. And so I thought the, the, the way to do that was to have me in the story as a character. And in order to get people to continue reading, I had to find a way to hopefully get them to emotionally invest in me as a character. And so I decided, you know, I wanted to kind of subject myself to the same uh, level of openness that I was asking these players to provide me with. And then to me, you know, bringing up or including certain people like my dad or my ex-girlfriend in the story to, to to give it that that emotional resonance. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your dad because that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You had a very open and, and vulnerable conversation with your father in this book. And at the end of it, your father seemed to give you some kind of closure on on the choices and feelings that you were talking to him about. Did you get the kind of response that that you were expecting or did you go into that conversation really not knowing what to expect at all? You know, I, I didn't I don't even know that I expected him to react at all. I, it was more about me knowing that he that he knew this or that I had I had explicitly articulated it to him like I had it was. You know, I even said, like, when I was preparing, when I was before I said all that to him, I told him, like, look, I don't I don't need you to respond. I don't need you to give me your approval. It's not about that. It's about me knowing that, you know, and that I've said these things. Um, now, if you'd come back and been like, oh, I'm really disappointed in you, I'm sure my feelings <laughs> really hurt. So his reaction was was wonderful. Um but at the same time, people ask me, oh, is your, you know, has your relationship really changed as a result of that conversation? And the answer is no, because my dad is still who he is. You know, it's not like just because I had that moment that the next time he's going to suddenly be the guy who's talking about his feelings. Um, so it's more about me accepting the differences between us and, you know, um, yeah, I think I think, uh, you know, it was it was. Uh, as as nice an outcome as I as I could have expected. Yeah, and it it did seem like a kind fatherly acknowledgement of him recognizing the differences between you and and accepting them as well. Which you know, like you said, if if you didn't need that that approval, that's good. But I'm sure it was somewhat, I guess, rewarding or kind of nice to hear that your father, you know, had known that yeah. for a long time and, and felt that way. So yeah, I, I just I thought that was a really nice touch, and I I think. And again, it probably depends on your perspective of what baseball means to you. But but growing up, baseball was a huge sport in our family. And my dad coached all our Little League teams. And Grandpa was taking me to baseball games. And so when right. I see that father-son connection anywhere with baseball stories, to me, it just it, it resonates and it makes it more powerful. So I thought that was I thought that was an excellent part of the book as well. Just another good like emotional checkpoint to kind of really keep the the story going and really keep you invested in in your personal experiences in the story it's been interesting to see i think this book whether you end up liking it or not liking it 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 it, it provokes an emotional reaction in most people i've noticed that just from now it's been out for a few months reading the reviews talking to people which i think is is good i mean that was my my goal was to have an emotional connection with the reader and i think like, we think about books you know, books are there to inform and entertain and 
but books don't have to have an emotional impact, right? There are many books that it's more just about information. And in baseball, there's a lot of baseball books that are more mostly informational. And I was trying to write a book that would provoke an emotional reaction. And it's been interesting to see the gamut of emotions that have been provoked, some of which are negative. You know, I think by me being so vulnerable and talking so openly about my thought process and feelings, it sometimes stirs up feelings in people that that uh, are negative, whether negative towards me or, you know, it makes them feel insecure about something or it brings up some, you know, I've, I've, I've seen that in, in the negative responses, in, you know, to the book, it, it makes me think, well, if someone takes the time to go online and write a, a negative review or a negative post, then clearly I've, I've, affected them in some way. I've, I pushed some button, right? And, you know, it, it, yeah, it always it hurts my feelings to read a negative review, but uh, but I'd rather have an emotional connection, even if it's negative, than have no reaction at all. And um, on the positive side, it's been overwhelming to see how many wonderful, you know, positive association. I mean, the book, again, I think because of the the, the way that I wrote it, it makes people stop and think about their personal relationships with their fathers, their their spouses or their partners or their family, their mothers. And like I, I think the most amazing response that I've gotten was I got a letter last week from a, uh, a guy in prison in, in Minnesota who had who was actually a minor league baseball player in the 80s. And this most beautiful, eloquent letter about how the book touched him and kind of brought up all these feelings that he has with his son and how important baseball is in their lives and their relationship. And so, you know, those times when I when I if I start to get down on myself, if I see like a negative review, it's, I have to step back and be like, you know what, like if I've if I've elicited all these emotional reactions in readers, I've done my job. What a powerful experience as a writer. So you get to the end of this journey. You've traveled the 11,000 mile sojourn across the United States, meeting all these ball players. You've put this whole book together. And, you know, now, like you said, it's been out for a couple months. And looking back on it, at the end of this experience, was there anything that you kind of left on the cutting room floor that, that you wish you had included? Is there anything that maybe when like the paperbacks released that you might go put in another edition of this book? Not anything that, I mean, nothing was left out that I would want to have put in other than there was this scene, this, I stop and see, and see the iron Sheik, the professional wrestler who I briefly mentioned in the beginning of the book. I had tried to do a book about him years ago and, it didn't work out. And I had this nice moment with him in Georgia on the road trip. But I ultimately thought it, it was maybe a little too far afield, you know, thematically with baseball for for the book. Um, but that wasn't that would have been a nice little story. And then if I, any, you know, I have thought like someone like Gary Pettis, it would be interesting if I could interview him now after the fact, and then that could be like an afterword, you know, maybe someone like him who I, I didn't get to talk to him, but getting to include that in a, in a subsequent edition might be interesting. I'm assuming prior to this and, and based on what I've, I've seen of your work, most of what you've written up to this point was, was academic. 
after going through this experience, do you have a desire to continue with this kind of writing in the future? Did did this process inspire you in, in any way? Well, so my, my writing, I mean, I have a career as having been an academic, and so I published, you know, academic papers. Um, before I did this book, uh, I did a bunch of stories about science that were for for a general audience, you know, for a popular press. And I used to work at Islands Magazine as an editor right after college. So I've written a lot of stuff for a general audience, but it's been more like short, you know, very short kind of stuff. Um, I was so happy to be able to go long and write a book length project. And I would love to do more of that. The challenge with this kind of writing is is navigating the economics of it. You know, it's we're we're in an era now when it's really, really hard to get paid well, paid at all, paid well for long form narrative, creative nonfiction kind of journalism. You know, there are fewer almost no magazines left that will that will do this. And, you know, a book is great, but a book takes years to put together. So I want to do more of it. It's just trying to figure out how to make it financially viable. So what advice would you give to someone that that maybe you inspired through your writing who's decided to take their own baseball expedition? Maybe not an 11,000 mile journey, but maybe a, a journey of their own. What what would you tell someone based on your experiences? Well, I think the most important thing with any project like this is is to be honest about your goals right from the start. You know, what is it? Why are you doing this? What's your intention? Is it that you want to write a book that you want to sell a lot of copies of because you want to be a famous author? Is it that you want to just have an experience because you love baseball? And if you're honest about your intention, then the, the, the way to get to that goal will become clear. You know, there's different steps to take depending on your intention and your goal. So that would be the, my first thing would be to like sit down and, and why am I doing this and be honest about that. And the second thing, if once you get into writing, is the best piece of writing I've ever advice I've ever gotten from a, was from a guy named Steve Padilla at the L.A. Times, who said uh, the most important thing in any piece of writing, whether it's 100 words or 100,000 words, is the meaning. And so always you go back to the meaning as your anchor in your writing process that, you know, whatever figure out. Be able to articulate the meaning of the of the of the piece in one to two words, no more than that. And then whenever you feel like you're getting lost, go back to that meaning. And if it's if what you're writing is not serving that purpose, then you need to get rid of it. That's really interesting. So based on just earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you had had. You know, I think it was like 38 different publishing companies kind of reject your your idea. Mm-hmm. Was was that at any point to you? I'm sh- I'm sure it had to be frustrating, but at any point did it seem like something that maybe you had this idea and you weren't going to be able to figure out how to make it work the way that you wanted to? Yeah, I mean, certainly I was down to am I? I, I was clear I, I was not going to get a, a big contract, so am I going? Am I willing to? put all this work in for very, very little money. You know, that was a question I had to face. Like when I went to university of Nebraska, you know, my advance was $2,000. It's like, okay, am I willing to write a book for $2,000 and all the, all the time that it's going to take. Right. And, um, and at that point I said, yeah, it's, it's worth it. I need to see it through. I need to, I need to finish this. 
Man, I love that. And to me, just hearing that, that adds just a whole other layer of depth to your book. Just kind of knowing that it was something that you really felt like for your own personal, like almost your own personal well-being that you needed to finish. Like it was just that, it was just that, that white whale that you needed to, you know, you needed to find. That to me, that's a really interesting added component to your, on top of your writing. Yeah, so is there anything else that you're working on that you want people to know about currently, whether it's, you know, like I said, maybe baseball writing or maybe academic writing? No, um, I just, you know, hope people, you can follow me at Waxpack Book on Twitter, which is where I'm most active. Um, waxpackbook.com for all the information relating to the book. There's the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, which has been this really nice collaboration between several writers who had baseball books that were affected by the pandemic. And so we have a whole series of interviews and podcasts and all kinds of cool content that's at uh, pbbclub.com, Pandemic Baseball Book Club. And so, yeah, and I think, you know, I hope people enjoy the book and will continue following me and, um, you know, at some point, I'm sure I, I don't have anything sort of imminent next for a project, but I have a lot of ideas, and I'm sure I'll, I'll do something you know, at some point. Well, Brad, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. I love the added depth to your book, and I look forward to, to reading any of your writing, whether it's academic or baseball-related going forward. Well, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it.